HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Two dudes named Lou and Chava In a car not built for back roads Travel back roads never meant for cars Their singular objective Is to learn about agave Bring the knowledge back to Gringo Bars I am Lou Bank. I am Chava Perivan. And this is a very special episode of Agave Road Trip, the award-winning, critically acclaimed podcast that helps Grand Gex bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits in rural Mexico. Why is it so special, Senor Lou? It's so special, Chava Perivan, because we've got a guest of such stature. I, I Look, I dressed fancy for it and everything. Yeah, I just took a shower. Did you shave? I can't see if you shaved from here. You, you're I using your, your, you're using your fancy glasses and everything. What? What? Yes, who, I, <laughs> who is our guest? I'm dying. <laughs> right. So you know uh, the nonprofit uh, sacred that uh, that I started uh, years ago. The nonprofit. It's nonprofit, and by law has to have a board. Mm-hmm. Right, so a nonprofit is a corporation, but it doesn't have any owners. It is owned by the public, and then there are board members who, in essence, serve the public uh, by overseeing the nonprofit. So you know, we we have uh, well until until this week, we had six board members. You're a board member. I'm I am. A board I member. am a servant. He's a board member. I yep. am a servant of and, the people's. Yep, and then we've got Izzy, the dentist, and we've got Jason, the consultant, and Shelby, the lawyer. And uh, now, today, uh, we have, a, I, well, I was going to say our first board member on, but I guess you and I have been on every episode. So, you know, besides us, the first other board member is Rick Bayless, Chef Rick Bayless. Are you kidding, right? Oh, come on. You already knew this. You read the notes. But oh, it's I did very, read the you know, notes. It, it's very exciting for me. Um, it's exciting for me to, to, A, to have him on the podcast, but B, uh, it's it's humbling that he would want to participate in this little thing that uh, that was just a hobby that uh, that we started years ago. That has, has escalated, become, though. It has escalated. You, it like, has escalated. I don't want any false humbleness here. It has. Uh, oh, there is nothing <laughs> false about my humbleness in this. Um, well, but it has grown in a, in a way that I, I think you might have thought about it being a possibility, but I didn't quite. No. I, I don't quite think. <laughs> no? no. Okay. Well, there no. you go. There you go. <laughs> no. So anyway, um, yeah, very excited to have him on. Talk about the uh, how you know who who he is and how he became who he is, and talk about why he is participating with Sacred and all the other philanthropy that he does. It's really interesting. He 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 does as much philanthropy as anybody else I know. Awesome. And if there's some someone that knows about that, is you. I, I've worked in the philanthropy world for uh, for a little bit, but I do not have my medals, service medals, as you do. <laughs> well, well. Anyway, so let's uh, let's clear the deck and welcome our guest, Chef Rick Bayless. Let's do that. 
Uh, beautiful. So we've got a bunch of questions for you, and uh, yeah, I guess we're just going to jump right into it. Normally, well, you know the format, right? Normally, what we'll do is an interview, and then we'll pull some quotes, but we're hoping uh, that instead we can do this differently because it's honestly, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for us, you know, and I've not I think I said it to you over Christmas, but you know it's a big deal for us that you're joining the board um, and that you're 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 doing the podcast. So thank you. My pleasure, absolutely. Awesome. So I think should I start, Lou? Because I do have a. I think the the most uh, basic, but in in some capacity important question. You know, like I think that there are few things that are more powerful than food because you know, like I always say that a book can't kill you. A movie can't kill you. It doesn't matter how horrible or good it is. You know, like it just, it doesn't get inside your body. With food, you are trusting your life in the hands of whoever you are eating from, right? That thing can kill you and can change your life. So my question will be, when was that first experience for you in which you had access to Mexican food that changed your life? And you decided like, oh Lord, this is the one. This is the thing that I'm going to pursue. <laughs> Well, it's very interesting that you should take that tack going into it because um, it is something that I always talk about, the relationship between food and our body and how integral that is because a lot of people think of food just as fuel for their body, but never really stop to think about the fact that it can hurt you or it can change your life. And to be open to it changing your life is a really big deal, I think. And mm -hmm. I would say in US culture, um, we are taught from an early age to not think about that part of it. Whereas in other cultures, food is such an integral part of celebrations and, and just life in general that people really respect it. And um, I, I got to go to Mexico for the first time when I was 14 years old. And that changed my life because um, I wasn't going to a tourist place. Nowadays, you would say, oh, if I went to Mexico at 14 years old, I would probably be going to the Riviera Maya or maybe Puerto Vallarta or maybe um, one of the Cabos. Um, but that's not what, where I went. Um, I went to Mexico City. And that was the thing that really changed me because when I got there, um, I didn't say, oh, this is where I want to live the rest of my life, which was what a lot of people say <laughs> when they see, say, that beautiful Caribbean water uh, off of the Riviera Maya. Um, but what I said was, I feel like I've come home. And that there was something about Mexico that resonated with me, even at 14 years old, that I just thought, I want this to be part of my life because I love these people and the way that they, the way they maneuver through life. Um, and um, I will say that um, th there's two answers to it. I'll give you the first answer is very simple that we were staying in the great old del prado hotel right across from the the um, alameda park in mexico city a hotel which is no longer there because it was severely damaged during the 1985 earthquake and had to be torn down um, but it was right across from alameda park and just walking across to the park and buying roasted pepitas or they were selling at that time that i was there they were selling um roasted uh walnuts and roasted pecans as well and the smell of mesquite charcoal and those roasted nuts sort of changed my life <laughs> because oh. it was such an invigorating <laughs> smell for me, I'd never smelled anything like that. I grew up in Oklahoma City in a barbecue restaurant, which has its own incredible smells, but I had never smelled anything quite like that. And it I have to underscore the fact that it was not just the toasted nuts. It was the toasted nuts mixed with that smell of mesquite charcoal 
And then you could just add that sort of whole earthy environment around there because, you know, it is a park. And yes, it's got uh, a lot of sidewalks going through it and everything, but you still smell the earth as well. So um, that was one of the things that I had never smelled before. And I just thought, oh my God, this is what I, instead of looking at the Caribbean waters and saying, this is where I want to live, I smelled that smell and said, this is where I want to live. And the second thing was when I was 16 and I had the opportunity to go from Mexico City up into the state of Hidalgo to a small town where I had some friends that were doing linguistics work. And um, that was Ishmiquilpan was the name of the town. Um, and it's a, a, a very strong Otomi um, uh, uh, settlement up there. Um, and they took, I was with a group of high school students and they took us um, to a place that in my memory is just a, a converted gas station and it had been converted into a restaurant but it still looked like a gas station in the front <laughs> and it was off of the highway um, but this lady or her family had done this change to make it into a little restaurant and um so this was when I was 16 years old, and the organizer of this trip said that we needed to be introduced to mole. And she, this woman made, she cooked very traditional Hidalgo food, um, but she made mole all the time. And I was super intrigued by the, the concept of mole because it was the first time I'd ever had it. And I will say that that really changed my life because when you find the explosion of mole flavor in your head for the first time, it's certainly unlike anything you have ever tasted before. And because this woman, um, in my memory, I don't know if she was, but I'm going to say she was a really good cook because most of the cooks that do that kind of stuff are good cooks, you know, they've been doing this since the time that they were little kids. And I, I asked to go back and see the kitchen and the kitchen um, had no gas um, hookup at all, but she was doing all of the cooking over a bed of coals. And so if you just think of it as a large trough, she was cooking over this trough of coals, which meant that she had that all of that heat blaring right up into her face. Um, and she had uh, an earthenware cazuela in the back, and that's where the, the mole was. And it was just gurgling back there. And of course, when you see that kind of a thing, so you've got these glowing red coals and then you've got an earthenware pot and then you've got this dark thing sort of bubbling up gurgling up and it looks for all the world like a primordial thing and like it's going to that that you know it's lava coming up from the essence of the earth and then I sat and tasted it. And I don't remember eating a lot of it. I remember savoring every <laughs> bite that I had, but it was such an odd flavor for me because I'd never had anything like that. And I just remember thinking, what is the flavor? Of which I, of course, later learned it was the flavor of mole because a good mole fuses all of the flavors together. And that I knew was a, a life-changing experience. I knew that when, when I had it um, and I couldn't get it out of my head after that. So I will say that that so 14 and 16 years old were the times that I knew that Mexican food was both incredibly fascinating and I wanted to learn more about it and also something that just resonated with me even though that mole was a really foreign thing when I first tasted it and uh, so, like I, I love this so much because I like it was really connected to the space the tools the just all the elements that informed the food because I think if you had seen these roasted pecans with mesquite anywhere else, it wouldn't have had the powerfulness that in Alameda, which to, for me is one of the most powerful parks in all Mexico. It is it's just an incredible place. So it's 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 amazing that that it that, that you held the whole package. You were so lucky. Yeah. Well, and it's a, it's an interesting thing that they both really um, resonate around. Uh, 
uh, live fire um, because live fire is something I grew up with because I grew up in barbecue and anything that's with live fire resonates really beautifully with me. That's uh, like what I like to do um, is to cook with live fire. And since I grew up doing that and there's so much of it in Mexico, it was um, I think that's one of the reasons that I loved Mexico so much. And then, then I'm going to add one other little element to the Alameda Park experience. Um, this was in the evening. We got there, I think, around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. We got to the hotel. And, of course, that's just when things are revving up in Mexico City. In Oklahoma City, that's when they roll up the sidewalks and everything goes to bed. But um, I was super excited about the fact that there were so many people in the park and it was in the summertime. Um, but the other thing that that I remember very vividly is there was an echo of sound coming from Garibaldi Square, where all of the mariachis hang out, waiting for people to hire them to come to their house parties and stuff. And to hear that sort of in the distance, more like an echo, um, said to me that, oh my God, this is such a dramatic culture. It's so full of vitality that the notion I guess we could call it that that a notion of fiesta sort of hangs in the air all the time and you can just reach out and grab it even if you're not literally having a party but there's something that is sort of that element of fiesta that is always within arms arms reach um i just think about going to the markets um of mexico and how that they seem like they're earthy places where you go to buy food that you're going to take back to your house and make. But there's always crazy, whimsical, fun things that are just there to delight you. And I, I like that. They're not there just to give you pleasure. They're there to delight you. And I don't know of another a culture that is greater than Mexico um, about creating delight just everywhere. I always say, never Baroque, always Rococo. Always yeah. the excess <laughs> of the excess. <laughs> That's so fun. Yes, I would agree with that. Yes. Not just the marble column, the twisted marble column, pink, right? That's the <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that brings all that delight. So, so I want to, I want to step you back from that first trip for a minute, Rick. Um, so, you know, when, when you were talking about 14 and heading to Mexico city, like I, in my head, I was thinking about Chava at 14 in Mexico city and he was just getting drunk at Xochimilco. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, talking about, uh, yeah, well, let's not give details about that. My mother can someday <laughs> learn said, English. He's, and he's, he's, I have said oh, this oh, publicly. Yeah. But yeah, come on, Lou. Okay. but, but like, it makes me wonder, you know, I, I grew up outside of Chicago here, chef and it, in my first experiences with Mexican food were like, you know, those hard shell Ortega tacos and the ground beef and the cheddar cheese. And I'm wondering, like, what did what did your like, you, you ended up in Mexico City at 14? But were you prepared at all for what you saw there from what you had in Oklahoma? No, I, I grew up eating Mexican food usually once a week. Um, but uh, the one thing that I can say about the Mexican food I grew up with, um, it was uh, part of a small local chain called El Cherito. And it, um, it was real Tex-Mex food, but it was actually um, prepared Tex-Mex food. So you didn't get a pre-made or pre-fried U-shaped shell for your tacos. Um, they actually filled the tacos with something and then fried them. So they were much more like the Guadalajara, you know, taco frito kind of thing, not the taco dorado that's rolled, but sort of the um, empanada kind of shape. And um, so I grew up with that and with that, that, which I still love to no end, is that what we called red chili gravy that went on the cheese enchiladas. And 
It's made with um, some meat in it, but it's basically um, made like a white sauce because it's thickened with flour. And then it has that Texas style chili powder in it that's super heavy and cumin. And um, so you make that kind of thing. And then that goes over the cheese enchiladas. I'm just telling you what was my favorite dish there. And so um, I would eat that every time that I went there. And it was kind of a funny thing because, um, you know, I'm old as Methuselah. So um, I can say that when I was a kid, we we didn't have avocados weren't really available at all. They had just sort of taken hold in California because they, you know, a, a crop of California avocados really did come into to being until like 50s or 60s and so we we didn't really have avocados in oklahoma city we didn't have a whole lot of things but um i will say that at el charito you could get their guacamole salad and because the avocados were scarce and very expensive they would make this I, I didn't, I don't think it was very good. I don't remember liking it at all, but it was a sort of guacamole that was put on a whole bed of shredded lettuce and you just kind of mixed it all together to make it like the guacamole as a salad dressing, if you will. Um, and I just thought that was the stupidest thing that I'd ever seen in my entire life. So I didn't really do that. I, but then when I got to Mexico, of course, it was a different story and tasting an avocado for the first time. Um, the first place that I ever tasted an avocado on, the, and it was on that first trip was at uh, Cafe de Tacuba that is just almost to the Socalo on, um, on Tacuba street. And, um, that whole place just blew me away. I ate their classic um, house specialty enchiladas, the the ones that are that have they have like a like a poblano gravy on them and melted cheese, sort of enchilada suiza style. Um, but it's their specialty of that. And I I thought, oh my god, there's there's so many flavors here because. That's the one thing that I think everyone is really taken by when they go to Mexico is that the flavors on the plates are just like, they're just dynamic. <laughs> and um, though I came from barbecue, which is definitely dynamic, it's, it's a more one-dimensional dynamism because it has to do with the vinegar that's added to a bunch of things. Whereas in Mexico, that dynamic quality can come from the fresh chilies. And of course, lots of lime juice, which is a brighter and lighter flavor than vinegar. Are, are you, so, are um, you just, are you just trying to set us up for hate mail from barbecue chefs? Is no, I'm not. I, I'm going to say it's, I, I can say this because I grew up in barbecue and still cook barbecue. Um, but I just, I think that, that the Mexican, Mexican palate, and I think about this because I teach a lot about Mexican food, is just dynamic in a different way. And um, I was really taken with that. The freshness, that's the one thing that I just absolutely love about Mexican food is the all the fresh stuff. You just think about no matter where you go, that street vendor has got fresh white onions chopped and cilantro and cut up limes to put and over salsas. everything. And salsas. And fresh salsas. I, I, like, I suffer so much when I am in the U.S. because it's where are your salsas, guys? Come on. Why are oh. you torturing me like this? Ketchup is our salsa, Chava. I tried to explain that to you. And, <laughs> and it is. And I think there's a lot. Like, I'm a huge ketchup fan, okay? So I could go what? for two hours about ketchup. No. I think because, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm a huge ketchup fan. I think it's one of the greatest condiments that's ever been done, but it's not a fresh flavor. <laughs> so it's a, it, it, it all comes from the way it's cooked down and the amount of umami you can get from you. But to tell you the truth, there's not a ton of umami, that deliciousness factor. In salsas, they're just bright and in your face, but in ketchup, it's all about umami. This episode of Agave Road Trip is brought to you by Mezcal Ultramundo. Ultramundo is a mezcal brand owned by a family without any real historic connections to mezcal heritage. Instead, their connection is to nature. They own a 24,000-acre ranch that has been used to graze cattle. It's a beautiful wild place. Everywhere you turn, it's a sea of coyotes. Fresh coyotes, old coyotes, fallen coyotes. 
just sprouting coyotes, and specifically from Maguey Lamparillo, variety that takes something like 15 to 18 years to reach maturity. Now, there's a lot to talk about with this brand, but I'm reluctant to do that because whatever I say will divert your attention from what I believe is the truly important story, those 24,000 acres of wild agave. You know, we spend a lot of time in this industry talking about sustainability, but the truth is any spirit being shipped out of the community in which it's made isn't truly sustainable. The fossil fuels needed to make the glass bottles and to physically ship them aren't sustainable. So no brand of spirit you're drinking is truly sustainable. I tend to instead look for practices that move us as an industry, move us as a species closer to sustainability. And Ultramundo's harvesting practices are a great example of exactly that. The experts who visited their ranch have suggested that so long as they limit their annual harvest to no more than 80% of what reaches maturity, they'll have a self-sustaining supply of this long-growth agave. Every time I return to Oaxaca, more and more of it is monoculture espadine. Row after row after row of these farmed agave are replacing wildlands where so many diverse plants once thrived alongside so many diverse insects, animals, and bacteria. And I get it. I understand why that happens. And I'm not suggesting we should all stop drinking Oaxacan espadine, but I am saying we need to see more projects like Ultramundo, projects that preserve the biodiversity of our planet. Ultramundo is available now in the USA, everywhere via mail order for consumers, and at wholesale in California for bars, restaurants, and liquor stores. If you believe in preserving wildlands and believe in preserving biodiversity, but still want to drink delicious mezcal, please give Ultramundo a try. Learn more at ultramundo.mx. That's U-L-T-R-A-M-U-N-D-O dot M-X. So much of what we do creates a carbon wake that is, given the structure of our modern world, nearly unavoidable. But we can minimize that wake by making diverse choices. And now, back to our interview with Chef Rick Bayless. I, I love what you're saying about avocado because, you know, like I, I come from an avocado farmer family. That, that's what my family has been doing for, I think, two generations now. And to be very honest, when I was a child, I, I don't think I quite understood what avocado was. I thought it was like a really advanced for my fourth, five-year-old palate. And it took me a lot of traveling around Mexico and a lot of trying it in different iterations of different cuisines of the north, the center, the south, to like in a way come to terms to what was my household. So, you know, like I, I know I've just spent a lot of time in Mexico and I'm just using this as a little example. Did something like that happen around your trips? Where talking about these dynamic flavors, were you like was that a lot of the part about touring or going around Mexico? Like being like Jesus Christ, this very humble ingredient suddenly is taking and transforming into something that I will have never thought could take this turn. Well, I I don't think that I was um, I, I was completely open to all of that on my first few trips. And the truth of the matter was that I was more interested in Mexican culture than I was in Mexican cuisine. Uh, I had grown up in a restaurant family, so I was aware of food. And because when, when you grow up in barbecue, it's very regional and everybody's incredibly proud of what they do and is and you're willing to defend it to the death um, because this is like I mean I know that a lot of people don't know what Oklahoma barbecue is but um, it is a very distinctive style um, it's getting sort of messed up now because lots of people have taken elements of Texas barbecue and brought them into Oklahoma barbecue but when I was growing up it was very definitely its own thing and when I think about what what was attractive to me when I went to Mexico, it was the fact that there were all these regional cuisines. And I don't, didn't, I mean, I would talk about the, them having a different cuisine there, but I don't think I could articulate it very well. And what I wanted to study, and the reason when I went to college, I studied Spanish language, literature, and Latin American studies is because I really wanted to get deep into the culture and sort of what makes Mexico tick and why is it a different is it different than every place else in Latin America? 
And so I, I was really intrigued in that. Um, it was later on in my life that I circled back and said, okay, well, I've studied a whole lot about, uh, about Latin American culture and specifically about Mexican culture, but now I really want to put my love for food together with mm -hmm. my love for culture. And I want to focus on Mexican food because it's Mexican food. Like I, I always say that if you put a plate of food in front of me, I can tell you a whole lot, uh, a lot of stories about Mexican history, because that plate of food will tell me all those things. It'll tell me about geography. It'll tell me about history. It'll tell me about cultural adaptations and things of that nature. And so that's why I've always been so attracted to food in general, but Mexican food in particular. No, I love it because food becomes almost a synthesis of technologies, cultural relationships, survival Absolutely. techniques, notions of delight or not. Uh, or yeah, not, no, yes. I, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I love that approach. And I think that really opens your eye to understand the materiality of the culture as an extension of all the intangible things that are just impossible to grasp unless you have those physical expressions in front and inside you, right? For sure. Awesome. I love I love that approach. So so then when did you end up moving down to Mexico and how how long were you there and uh, where were you and Well, the thing was that I, so then I I left um uh my undergrad with my undergrad degree and went to graduate school at University of Michigan to study anthropology and linguistics. And I was very very interested in how a culture expresses itself through its language. And um, I went there to study with a cultural anthropologist um, linguist um, that was uh, 60 years old when I went there. And I thought I would have just enough time to finish my PhD thinking that I was going to be on an academic track um, and that I would finish my PhD at the same time that he retired. Well, uh, after my second year, I blasted through all my coursework. I did all of that. I did all my studies um, and I was ready to take um, the, the comprehensive exam, what we called our prelims. And then once you've passed that, then you could start working on your, your dissertation. And so I, I, blasted through it really fast because I wanted to get to the place where he could be my advisor on my PhD dissertation. And he, I wouldn't have to worry about him like retiring early or anything. And at, at 62 years old, after I passed my prelims, he announced that he was going to retire unexpectedly then. And so I was, there was no one else in the department that studied, that did the kinds of studies that he did at all. And I was devastated. I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I decided to actually, I started working on my dissertation. I wasn't getting anywhere because I didn't really have an advisor to work with. And um, I said, you know what, I'm just going to take a year off. And I'm going to get my head on. Well, by th that point, I had already started writing um, uh, about food for local publications. I had opened a small catering business. That's the way I made money. And I had started teaching cooking classes. But what most people don't know about me, because they think of me as the guy who only does Mexican food, um, I was doing... Um, I, my specialty was French pastry. Um, I was a pastry oh. chef almost exclusively, and that's what I taught and wrote about. And um, so people, I was, I was teaching tons of cooking classes. And uh, most of them, oddly enough, were focused on French food and French pastry. And um, I, I decided, uh, well, some people said, you have lived in Mexico, because I had done that when I was an undergrad. And they said, teach us how to make Mexican food. But I didn't know how. I had never cooked it. And so I literally gave myself a few crash courses and then started putting that in my repertoire of classes to teach. They were very simple. And then um, I had been doing a lot of work on local television in the Detroit area because I was living in Ann Arbor, but it's just adjacent to Detroit. And so morning news stuff, you know, they would always have their human interest stuff. And so every month or six weeks, I would be on the morning news and I would be teaching different things. And so um, that had led the me getting this offer to do. Um, a series of shows for public television back back in the day when it was just Julia Child cooking on 
public television. And um, I was offered an uh, opportunity to do some shows on Mexican cuisine. The story is way longer than I, I should be telling for this podcast, but I ended up this sort of thing falling in my lap. But I said, well, I can't do it because here I am a trained anthropologist. And I said, I cannot do it without first going to Mexico and spending a couple months just doing food research so that I can be really um, uh, I can be transparent, that it's not stuff that I'm making up because I read it in a book someplace, but it's something that I had firsthand experience with. And so um, I went to Mexico for six weeks, came back, did 13 shows, um, went back to Mexico and did, did six more weeks and came back and did 13 more shows. And um, they were all studio shows. So I had to talk about food. I mean, talk about culture, which is never the greatest way to do it, but it's what I had. And so I did. And, and what, I talked and, about where where I tasted you, the dishes and stuff like that. And what 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 years are we talking roughly now, Rick? Well, like I said, I'm super old. So we're talking <laughs> eight, 1980, 1978 uh, and nine is when wow. I did those things. And um so so there were there was virtually no cooking on public television except for Julia Child. She was kind of the only one. And so I did those shows. They were really super low budget. Um, I have are these, I don't think anybody can play the 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 tapes that I have now, but um I have them under my desk and I wouldn't show them to anyone. Okay. <laughs> They're that old. Like, not something that I'm like crazy excited to show to anyone, but I will say it really seriously launched me into doing food research in Mexico. And I'm for that. I'm forever grateful. And then um, uh, the next year. Wait, wait, wait. Hey, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like This fascinates me because you're talking 78, 79, like 80. My reference point for Mexican food back then, as I was saying, is like Ortega tacos. And the fact that you had, you had producers at the local television station saying, yeah, come on and talk about Mexican food, which nobody was talking about at that kind of serious level is fascinating to me. Well, the impetus for this show, I have to, I will share that because it, it's a weird thing. It was, um, the, there's a lot of migrant workers that go through Ohio and I was working in Bowling Green, Ohio and their public station connected to the, the university there. And they had contracted with this woman who was part of the migrant community that came through doing harvest and stuff who had settled there and they thought as outreach from the mexican-american community that had settled in toledo or around toledo bowling green that they would uh, hire this woman to come on and do these shows and show so she would be sharing from that community uh -huh. so she backed out kind of they had all the funding for it and she backed out sort of at the last minute and they literally put an ad in the toledo paper saying that no. they were looking for someone no. to host this show and a friend of mine saw it and said you should go and talk to them and i so i did and they said i think you might be the right one there's an understatement. I I did. So anyway, I, that got me really started because I said I wanted, um, with that in the back of my head, that this is supposed to be a way to get to know a community of Mexican-Americans that had settled there fairly recently. Um, and it, so I always talked about how you get to know people through their food. And that was kind of a through line with my, my shows um, that I could talk about you know, eating um, the, the mole in Ishmiquilpan and, and making, then I actually went back to that same community when I was doing my uh, research for that first series of shows and made mole with somebody so that I could actually bring that home and talk about this person and what, what role the mole plays in this, in the festivities and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, I was always wanting to be the conduit because remember, I came from a background of linguistics and, and when you're, when you talk about, linguistics in a broad sense, you always have to talk about translation because in linguistics, we're talking about somebody's language. But when you're trying to understand that from the from an outsider's point of view, you always are doing translation. 
And so I said, you know, food is the same way. Food has its own, its own lexicon. It has its own syntax, the way you put dishes together, or the, the way you put a dish together, but then the way you group dishes together. It's all the same as language. And so you have to understand all of that in order to really understand the cuisine. And it's where I, I sometimes get my get a little discouraged when I see a lot of young chefs that are saying, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to show you Mexican food like you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take this dish that um, I grew up with on, on my, uh, from my Lithuanian grandmother, and I'm going to put poblano chilies in it. And it's going to show you Mexican food like you've never seen it before. Well, that's a valid thing for that person to do because maybe they have a Lithuanian grandmother on one side and a Mexican grandmother on the other. And for them, they can fuse those two things together and it can be an authentic expression of what they do. Um, and it could be brilliant. But I, I say there's a, something you got to understand before that. And that's the way that the culture itself looks at the food so i don't know if you guys have been to masala y maiz mm -hmm. uh, oh. from sakib and norma in mexico city but so sakib is um all from the it, the indian diaspora but he was not raised in india he was raised in kenya so there's a huge huge population of, of indians in kenya so he was raised there so his food growing up was this odd combination of Kenyan food and Indian food. And then his family immigrated to the U.S. and he grew up like high school in San Francisco. So then that got mixed in there. Norma's family's from Mexico City. And she, but she grew up with uh, a father that was American. <laughs> and so she got all that stuff. She immigrated to San Francisco, sort of did this sort of fusion food of her own. Then they decided to settle in Mexico City and do food that made complete sense to them. And when you eat it, you have to say they're brilliant. They're just brilliant because they confuse these things together in a way that makes total sense. Not everyone can. <laughs> and so I think that um, what I need to talk about, since I consider my role as a, a U.S. chef, as being the one that can shine a light on the traditional cuisine of Mexico, and in shining that light, I can say, you have to take the whole package here. You can't just pick and, and choose what ingredients you want to play with or what preparations seem interesting to you. You have to actually get to know the whole cuisine. And so I talk about that a lot, sort of like as I, I think of myself much more as, uh, as a, a translator of traditional Mexican stuff into a vernacular that can be understood in the United States, but trying to capture it completely. That's what I go for. A lot of what you're saying reminds me so much of Roberto Bolaño. I don't know if you've heard about this novelist. I don't know him. Explain to me what he does. He is a Chilean novelist that spent a lot oh. of time in Mexico, but he, he wrote uh, the joke is that he's Harry Potter for adults, which uh, oh. I think it's a very funny joke because he's nothing like Harry Potter. But uh, actually he has one, when you were talking about Alameda, in one part of his books, he has an amazing little story about him playing with a squirrel in Alameda that it's uh, amazing but uh, he I call him like the global Spanish speaker because he spent a lot of time all around Latin America decided to write most of his books in Mexico City but when he speaks through his characters you have a Chilean tone a Mexican tone a Colombian tone a Spaniard tone and it's all mixed and everything makes sense and and, and it expands the complexity of what it means to speak Spanish but but it, but it works which is a little bit what I think what 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 you're suggesting, which again is it's it's such a complex and 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 crazy thing to try to do. And I think that that what it can be frustrating is that pe some people think it's the easy exit or the easy access. Yeah, no, that's it's it's so true. And when you think about 
all of those different linguistic groups. I know that a lot of people think if you speak Spanish, you should be able to talk to anyone that speaks Spanish. But you know, it's like I, I lived in Mexico for five years. Well, first of all, I, I my major in college was Spanish language, and so um, I had to. I got introduced to lots of different dialects by do- lots of different instructors. Okay, but. I never wanted to speak anything but Mexican Spanish. And then, of course, I moved to Mexico where I just I was surrounded by Mexican Spanish only. And I only really speak Mexican Spanish. And a lot of times, like when I when I travel to Spain, um, you know, I maybe don't look like. I should be speaking Mexican Spanish, but that's what I do. And I was at a conference one time. It's confusing, but, you know, the Spaniards don't always look favorably on the Mexican accent. And so I was at a conference one time and in Spain. And um, we were just speaking Spanish, of course. And the and this one woman finally took me to the side and she said, you have to stop talking like that. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> I, I said, I'm sorry, it's the only Spanish I know. It really is the only Spanish I know. And the only one that I can really understand. Sometimes when the Spaniards start talking, I get lost. Or when, especially when the people from Argentina start sp- uh, talking, I get really lost. And so um, I, I, I say that, that the, a dialect like Mexican Spanish is so easy for me to understand, yet it's so unique that it reminds me of the cuisine. <laughs> the cuisine is so different than Spanish food and so different than the rest of Latin American food. It is its own thing. And once I get now, now at this point in my life, once I get outside of the Mexican way of thinking about food and how to create those flavors, I sort of get lost. I cook a lot at home and I do lots of different cuisines just to keep my my fingers in those things and kind of understand them a little bit. But I wouldn't say that I'm a good cook in any of those cuisines because the truth of the matter is they're all so different than the way food is approached in Mexico. And I, I love the way food is approached in Mexico. It's unique and it's super delicious. Love it. Love it. Love it. So I, I want to move away from the food for a minute, Rick. Um, so we've got, we've got at least uh, two mutual friends, but um, in 2017, in 2017, I was on this trip. I think it was 2017, maybe 2018. I was on this trip that I had organized uh, where I took a bunch of uh, folks from on a driving trip from Guadalajara to Oaxaca. Um, and one of the uh, one of the guys in the car was Patrick Ryan. And another guy in the car was uh, Jonathan Zaragoza. And Jonathan had just appeared on your podcast. And so he was playing it, which then sparked a conversation uh, about you. And I'd, I'd, I'd had a couple conversations with you prior to that, and I'd certainly eaten your food prior to that. But the way that Patrick spoke about you, I, I, I take it that he had worked with you for a while. He, the- he did, yeah. Yeah, the the way that he spoke about you, if if he is ever selected as Pope, you will be sainted. Like he could not have said he could not have said nicer things about you. And it it opened my eyes to who you are beyond um beyond the restaurant, right? Like it a working with the people who have worked with you and encouraging them to build their own restaurants and their own businesses. But then my friend, Jim Slama, um, also showed me the work that you do in philanthropy, working with farmers. And so I, I, I guess I want to ask like the, just that general question, like, okay, so what exactly do you do, um, in, the the nonprofit philanthropy realm and how did you get into that? 
Well, um, the, we started the Frontier Farmer Foundation about 18 years ago, but the seeds of it were sown about five or six years before that. Um, and um, one of the, th the lessons that I had learned living in Mexico was that the best food always comes from the places that have the best local agriculture. And when I moved to Chicago and my wife and I decided we were going to open a restaurant here, um, we had finished the manuscript for our first book that took us five years living in Mexico to work on that project. And uh, at the end of that time, we moved to the States. Uh, we had been doing some work um, periodically um, to make money to live on um, by doing consulting work in Los Angeles with a it's a kind of funny story because um, the we were working we were doing consulting work for a chain of mexican-american restaurants which were as mexican-american as you could possibly be including the crispy shell tacos and all of that but that's the way i made my money to write this first book that was all about why we should eat the real food of mexico and not that food that i was working for <laughs> So, so anyway, it's a, just a little bit of irony, just a little bit of irony in all of that. Um, but I had, uh, we had decided we were going to open a, a restaurant in, in Chicago um, because we had written this book about these regional foods of Mexico and yet no, nobody really knew them at all. And so we said we wanted to do a, a restaurant that could, could actually make them well so that people could say, oh yeah, that's really tasty. I've never heard of it before, but it's tasty. And so there would be um, sort of a benchmark, if you will, um, from the first book that we wrote to say, this is what it's supposed to taste like if you want to taste it and, and made well. You won't have to just travel to Mexico, but we, you can come to our restaurant here in Chicago. And so um, the one thing that I couldn't find was any local food. And I thought, Chicago will never become a great food town unless we can actually get some local produce. And so for the first three or four years that we were open, we were there was not a single farmer's market in the city of Chicago. And we it, we kept looking for small farms that we could buy from. Um, my wife and I on on Mondays when the restaurant was closed, would drive out into the countryside and buy stuff from farm stands, but there weren't even that many of those. We'd bring that back and cook with those. And I wanted people to start growing things that we could really utilize to make the food that we make in our restaurants. And so um, we, we worked with a bunch of different groups and most of them kind of fell apart and nothing really took. We had one restaurant, I mean, one farm that we adopted as a restaurant and um, they went out of business after the first year and we found another one and they went out of business after the second mm -hmm. year. And so we were really getting discouraged, but um, it was um, about the fifth year that we were open that we started to get um, together with some of the farmers up in Wisconsin and, and the state of Wisconsin, because they had sort of lost a whole lot of the dairy farms they had tried to tradition uh, transition excuse me transition those farms over into doing like organic produce and something like that and that so we got in connection with some of those farmers and we started buying from them we helped them create a co-op where they could deliver to someplace bring into chicago then we got our first farmers market in chicago and on but what we found out was that none of the the farmers that we were working with could supply nearly the produce that we needed in our restaurant it was just a drop in the bucket and so um, we started this thing which was a ten thousand dollar fund that we kept separate that farmers could borrow from to um in to invest in their farms so that they could become more productive that's what we were looking for and um the we they could they could have that money for one year and they could pay us back in produce if they wanted to and it was a no interest loan but we tapped out at ten thousand dollars for that and eventually uh, we saw how important $10,000 was to a small family farm and how it could really project them into the future. Um, if we could just invest like $10,000 in different farms, that they could become way more productive. 
So um, we eventually turned that into a 501c3 not-for-profit called the Frontera Farmer Foundation. And um, over the last 18 years, we have invested over $3 million in in small family farms in the Midwest. Um, And those are still, we tap out at at $12,000. And that's what those farms need is some kind of infusion of capital that's just that small. So these are almost like, we would call them micro loans, but they're micro grants. Um, But it's really, really changed the face of local agriculture. And of course, um, we have a lot more farmers markets and that sort of stuff. Now, these people do not just supply our restaurants. Occasionally, a a grant will go to somebody who we have been working with. But we have a separate board that does all of that. They have no idea who we're buying from. So this is just a way of getting more strong local agriculture. Um, And they look very clearly at people who either have CSAs or work on far, at farmers markets because we believe that, that that local produce needs to get into the hands of people who are going to say, yes, this is way better than what I can buy in a grocery store. Um, and it's way, it's way more interesting and it brings our family together and all that. There's a lot about how we established that as a not-for-profit, which was really, really hard. But I will just say one thing about it is that we were denied five times by the IRS, the the not-for-profit status. And um, finally, we convinced them. We got a really good not-for-profit lawyer that went back to the IRS and convinced them that local agriculture uh, creates community in two places. Uh, It creates community in the farm community where that farm is and keeps people, small families, um, on the land. And secondly, it creates community in the cities where the farmers markets are because it brings people together in the cities and the farmers markets have taken over the role of the old town square where you get a very diverse group of people all coming together and doing things around food, which we all need to nourish ourselves. And so we were very thrilled that we finally got the 501c3 status to give grants and to all of these small family farms in the midwest and it's um it's a funny not-for-profit because it has no paid employees okay not one paid employee we do not go after grants from anybody else we raise all of this three million dollars we have raised from guests in our restaurant and they understand how important local food is to making dynamic cuisine and so they're they're our huge supporters uh, we will be having our our we call it the dinner like no other because you have no idea what you're going to eat when you come to this dinner and we only do it that one night and you'll never see those dishes again so it's really it's really fun um it's a, a really fun night and we have a big auction where we raise a lot of money and stuff like that but we have been very lucky um to be able to write, raise that kind of money with no paid employees and it's just all volunteer work so 100 of all the proceeds go straight to the farmers that's, that's awesome that's so freaking amazing but but that's but that's not the it like that's that's one of the things you do that's one of the things <laughs> oh, Lord. right and like this is yeah. the piece that amazed me was every time i peeled back a layer there was something else underneath so the Bayless Family Foundation. Bayless Family Foundation is all about arts and education. And so um, we are very much a, a live theater family. My wife has a master's degree in theater. I came up through theater. My daughter has a, and son-in-law both have theater degrees. And so um, we, uh, we're really big. We believe that theater um, presents to people um, an opportunity to have real dialogue about things that you wouldn't normally have a dialogue about. Um, so uh, Chicago is a great theater town. We have over 200 storefront theaters in the city of Chicago. And the Bayless Family Foundation um, gives uh, two different kinds of grants. We give stepping stone grants to a storefront theater that we think has the potential to grow larger. And we are going to help them grow larger. We're going to give them all kinds of support to grow larger and perhaps find a space of their own, just the way 
the famous Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago started off in a church basement and then went to a small storefront and then eventually grew into the Steppenwolf we all know now. Um, so that's our stepping stone grants, and those go over, over a number of years that we're investing in one theater company and helping them to grow to that next stage. And the second one is we call them signal grants. Uh, we think that uh, certain theaters are just doing good work and people should pay attention. <laughs> so we'll give them a signal grant. Um, and uh, it usually just goes to keeping that, that group in business. <laughs> uh, usually they're very small companies, but we want to see if we give them an influx of money, what they can do. Can they do more? And let's see if maybe they get a signal grant later on. But this is just a way of saying, hey, people pay attention to this, this theater company. It needs to stay in existence because they have a unique voice. That's amazing. And, and, and now on top it, of all of that, yeah, you are it, part it, it, well, hang on a second. We only have five minutes left, <laughs> yeah. right? And I really want to get to why what, what Chava's about to ask you uh, uh, about, um, well, Chava's going to ask you why you uh, uh, joined the board of Sacred, but I know you've also been on other boards. and Yeah, lots. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to, my, my point just simply being, it's not three things. <laughs> there's a lot more and there's an article. Maybe you touched on it within your interview with David Hammond. Uh, which article? That article? Or is that what you're referring to? Or the, the other article? The, the, <laughs> you just, you just did an interview with David. Uh, yeah, for, yeah. For better magazine. Did you touch? Yeah. Cause you know what? Like, I would love to get a list from you of the different boards you've been on just to include it. Cause again, my point is every time I was peeling back layers, like, Oh, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. And we think of you as a, a, a restaurateur, as a, a cookbook author, as a celebrity person, but you've got all this other work you do. So, okay. So I, I just, that's just my point. <laughs> I, I, I'm involved in lots of things. Um, I, my goal is just to leave the world a better place than when I came in. And if I can contribute to anything that anybody is doing that is going to get them to make the world a better place, then I'm going to be there. I'm going to, I'm going to give whatever I can give to it. And if right. I may, I add like a more, a more delightful place because you know, about yes. fresh Prados, the best soup I've ever eaten in my life was water, salt, and a chayote. Why was yeah, that soup insanely beautiful? Because that chayote had grown 20 meters away from where I was standing, had, had been harvested that day and had been taken beautiful care of. And I still dream about that soup. I'm so day. glad to hear you say that because, um, you know, in the U.S., really what we get is chayotes that are grown in Costa Rica and mm -hmm. they have been, you know, shipped the however many 5,000 miles or whatever um, to the U.S. They, they, the variety that they grow in those commercial places in Costa Rica um, are, are, is a variety that can stay in your refrigerator or in the groceries distributor's refrigerator for months and oh, still Lord. look good. But it's lost a whole lot of its vitality. And when you, uh, I mean, probably a whole lot of our listeners have never um, eaten a chayote off of a vine, but when you taste that, it's got a dynamic flavor. Whereas most chayotes that people taste, they're just kind of insipid. They don't have very much going on. But you taste that that beautiful chayote, and my guess is it had a skin that was not dark green. I'm not. Excuse me. It wasn't that sort of middle color green. It was going a little bit toward yellow because once the, the chayote skin starts to yellow a little bit, it gets there gets to be this beautiful sweetness in the chayote, and that carries through everything. So I'm so happy to hear about your chayote soup with salt and water because well first of all i'm a huge fan of water um and a lot of people will tell you soup has to be made with caldo de pollo um some kind of a of a chicken Stop. broth yeah. but it doesn't you have you can make it with water and it will allow the vegetables to shine mm. but you have to have good vegetables yeah yeah, yeah. And if you're lucky enough to get the moon, la luna, in the middle of yeah. the chayote, you are the luckiest person in this planet. Nice. That nice, is just nice. like, it's it's just delightful. But anyways, like I, 
I, I really think that better can also be more beautiful and more delightful and more tasteful. So like I, I, I like I really I'm really excited about the, the work that you're doing and that you get to do that in the United States where, man, as you're saying, that's a huge need for the future. Yes, it is. And unfortunately, uh, people are nourishing themselves more and more um, with processed foods, which doesn't give you, um, I mean, it may give you the macronutrients that you need to be healthy and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't nourish your soul. And that is a, uh, one of the most important parts is that uh, the way you nourish your soul is to surround yourself with great people and share beautiful food with those people that nourishes your soul. But so does eating this really beautiful, fresh. It doesn't have to be fancy or complicated. It just has to be fresh. And that kind of food can just be, is so nourishing to you in a different way than just talking about macronutrients. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's it. We, we've taken you to one o'clock and I promised to get out <laughs> at an hour at the latest, but that's, I think that's a beautiful way to, to wrap this up. And I think this Thank might you. be break the record for the long, longest agave road trip episode, Rick. So we really appreciate wow. that you you were able to to stand us for this long. I will just say thank you so much for all of the wonderful questions because um, it's rare that I get to talk this way to people, and um, I'm I'm really passionate about food and its role in culture and in our lives and to be able to just really explore these things um that's very very special to me so thank you guys for the time awesome well, thanks rick we will catch up with you soon chef and uh, and we'll see you at the next board meeting all right <laughs> sounds great nice okay. to talk to you guys it was super fun thanks awesome. a lot Adios. thank you this has been Agave Road Trip, the podcast that helps gringo bartenders learn about agave spirits. Your hosts are Lou Bank and Chava Periban. Sound engineering by Roy Sierra. Theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Mark Rico. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, recommend it to your enemies. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Lou is in charge of our social media. So if he happens to sound like an old man, forgive him. He is one. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pitbulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio Network newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the food world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you here on Heritage Radio Network can drive you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If it drives you to drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly. Eat responsibly too. And listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly, wear protective earbuds. While wearing protective earbuds, do not drive or walk. Sit in a comfortable chair. If that comfortable chair has a hard seat, please remember to get up and stretch every 30 minutes. If you get up and stretch every 30 minutes, do not stretch beyond your abilities. Stay within your defined stretching capacity and consult a doctor who specializes in stretching. If you do not have a doctor, listen to all the shows on the Heritage Radio Network. There has to be at least one doctor among the Heritage Radio Network podcast hosts. Thanks for listening. Agave Road Trip out.